Good morning. I'm still tired from camp. My voice is like a half octave lower, and it was amazing. If you ever want to remember exactly how much energy you used to have while simultaneously being reminded of what you no longer possess, go to youth camp. It is super fun. Kids don't sleep, and it's constant engagement all the time, and they're an absolute blessing. And seriously, though, if you ever have a heart for that, you should volunteer or go check it out, or any of those things, because they are wonderful, amazing people. Let me say this really quick. You know the most beautiful thing about youth ministry? Is that youth haven't learned to be jaded like we adults have. And so they actually believe that God can do what he says he can do sometimes. And that's a powerful thing to talk to a group of people like that. It's a powerful thing to spend a week with a group of people like that. It would be a blessing for your life. You should go uh, volunteer in the youth area. They would love to have you. So that's my spiel. Uh, Beyond Religion is the new series that we are starting today. And I need to say something as we start this series. I recognize that the word religion has a wide array of definition. I do. And, and here's what I mean by that. Some of you in this room, if I were to say, you know, when you hear the word religion, what's it mean to you? It would be a very negative response. Some of you have learned to say, like, I have a relationship with Jesus, I'm not a religious person, or I don't like organized religion, or you'd have some sense of religion that's negative. Some of you would go, I mean, I don't know, it's a box I check on a survey. You know, like, that, that's what religion is, and there's lots of religions, and it's just this thing. Some of you would have a very positive experience with religion. You would say, religion is, is the Christian tradition that I'm a part of, that kind of anchors me into this larger thing. It's really important to me. And I just want you to know, I'm not actually seeking to mess with any of that. I would agree with all of those things and hold most of those, or or all of that same stuff is is important for me, and I'd have much of that same sentiment. But we're going to define religion really narrowly. I just want to get that out of the way. We're going to define religion really narrowly as we walk through this series, because there's something important uh, that that I want to convey here, not just this morning, but in the next couple of weeks. And so here it is. We're going to define religion this way. Religion is trusting in our resume for our own righteousness. Religion, we're going to find it this way the next couple weeks. Religion is trusting in our resume for our own righteousness. If the word righteousness doesn't resonate with you because maybe you didn't grow up in church or you haven't heard that word, essentially it's asking that righteousness is asking the question, am I good with God? Is God good with me? Right? So that's how we're defining religion. But to move beyond religion, we can define it this way. It's choosing to trust in God's resume for our righteousness. Moving beyond religion is choosing to trust in Christ's resume for our righteousness. I want you to hold that definition today, but also over the course of the next two weeks, uh, because that's how we're going to be using this term. So to start with, when I was eight years old, um, I went to a church with my mom down in Midtown, right next to the U of A. It was the church that we went to. Uh, I had grown up, my family background, I think my mom's side is Catholic, and so I remember being a little kid and going to a Catholic church. I just remember being told to be quiet a lot and getting in trouble, and that's all I remember uh, about it. So I don't have like a, a big background with that. She switched and became Protestant, I think, when I was like five years old. We started going to this church in Midtown, and so I was in their children's ministry now, just like going to the room and hearing the stories and eating the goldfish crackers, right? That's what I was doing. And then when I was eight, something really significant happened that I can remember to this day. I go to the children's ministry and I'm sitting in the Sunday school and they start telling this story. It was a lesson for the day, uh, this story from, I think it's Luke 18. And it's, it's a story Jesus was telling. And he's telling this whole story because he's trying to show 
the Jews that like ultimately the historic tradition and things that they'd held that they thought that they had was ultimately going to potentially keep them from, from following Christ. They were going to be blind to this thing. There's going to be a separation there. It's going to be hard. And so that's what the point of the story was. But that never got explained to me. So the story got accounted or recounted the following way to me. So essentially, Jesus tells this story. There's a rich man and a poor man, and they're sharing the same space. They're living in the same house. And the rich man would eat like luxurious meals at his dinner, and the poor man would lay at the rich man's feet eating the scraps that fell to the floor. The story says that the dog would lick his wounds. Dogs would lick the poor man's wounds. It's gross and graphic kind of image. And then both of them die. And then upon dying, it says that the rich man went to a place called Hades. This is the place the Greeks knew and understood to be the underworld. And then the poor man went to a place called Abraham's bosom, which was described as like a heavenly type of place where the man's there with Abraham, the patriarch of Judaism. And so there's this now in the story, as Jesus tells it, there's this exchange that occurs where the poor man can see the rich man and the rich man can see the poor man. And the poor man looks down at the rich man and the rich man's looking up and he's in this fiery, suffering, awful place And it says that he's so thirsty and he's in such suffering that he begs the poor man to dip his finger in water that he could just let a drop of the water touch his tongue to to wet his mouth because of the great suffering of the fiery place that he is in. This was the Bible lesson for the day. And I was terrified. I was, I was terrified. This painted a vivid picture in my mind as an eight years old, when I was eight years old. And I don't just mean metaphorically painted. After the story was told, we painted a picture of a man who's in fire, like reaching out and suffering, and then a poor man who's like looking down and crying, and like it was a lot of things. Put that on your fridge, right? That's what, so we painted all this, and we did this, and this, this messed with me. I was terrified when I left. I was so scared. And I went back to my house, and they stuck with me the rest of that day. I went to go to bed that night, and I had a dream. See, at the time, my mom was the only Christian in our household. My dad and I were not. And so I had a dream that my dad and I were in this terrible, fiery place, and we were suffering and begging for water, and there was none to be found. And I was terrified. So I woke up in an absolute panic and tears, and I ran into the living room, and I found my mom, and I told her what I'd been dreaming about, and I said, I don't want to go to the fiery place. And my mom said, well, if you just pray to accept Jesus into your heart, you, don't ha- you won't have to worry about any of that. And so right there, I prayed. And I prayed for God to forgive me and I, of my sins, and I prayed that he would become, you know, come into my life, and I prayed that I wouldn't go to the fiery place and that I would get to go to heaven. And, and then we hugged it out. We said amen, and we hugged it out, and it was a good moment, and I went back to bed, and I slept like a baby with my newfound fire insurance policy in my hand. And that, in some ways, began my story in relating with God. But, but truthfully, like for a lot of years, if people would have said, so when did you start, you know, when did you become a Christian? I'd be like, well, there was this moment when I was eight and I, I did this, but I've learned over time, you know, that, that kind of began my relationship with God. But the truth is what that really began, I think, was my relationship with religion. I do. I think that that moment, what, what most happened there, and I'm not minimizing what did or any of those things. I just think what mostly happened there was it started to begin my relationship with Religion, because all of a sudden after that, things changed for me. Going to church after that wasn't about going to hear Bible stories and eat goldfish and, you know, just like learn this stuff. I needed to know what God said because I needed to know what he wanted me to do because I didn't want to do the wrong thing or end up in the wrong way or somehow get on his bad side because I didn't want to end up in the fiery place. I didn't want to end up in the bad thing. 
And so I need to learn that. I started reading my Bible. I opened it up to Genesis and was like, I need to read the whole thing right now. And I started reading. I made it to Leviticus and was like, I'm going to take a break from that one and I'll skip it. Right? If you've never read Leviticus, there's a lot of laws and a lot of things that are in there. I went back and read that as an older person. But I started reading through this because I was like, what does God want me to do? What am I supposed to do here? And how does this supposed to look? And it was this interesting thing where I started to embrace a more religious way of looking at God and looking at myself, where I was trying to build up a resume to basically be like, look, God, I put all the bullet points. I checked all the boxes. Look at special skills. I'm praying. Like I did all of this so that I could hold this thing up to God so that he would like me, so that I could be in because I was worried that if I did the wrong thing or something were to happen, I'd, I'd be punished. It's like God would suddenly take those blessings away from me and then punish me. I accepted Christ no less than 10 times before I was 18 years old. If any of you guys are like, really 10 times? Here's the crazy thing. I could ask each of you right now, how many times did you accept Jesus Christ in your life? And you would be surprised at the hands that would go up in terms of like multiple, multiple times. And the reason why is because at some point you did this and you prayed and you're like, okay, I did this. And then you had a moment later where you struggled or where things got hard or where you started to doubt or where some kind of sin entered into your life. And you're like, wait, if I really had enough faith and if I really believed, then I would be doing this. Maybe I didn't mean it when I prayed the first time. Maybe the prayer didn't take. I need to pray again. So please come into my heart and please forgive me and please do this thing because I want your blessings. I want the good things and I don't want the bad stuff to happen. So I kept trying to do that, and I kept trying to build up this religious resume, and I'd try to add more and more good things to that so that when God looked at this, like, you know, you all have that, that image. I think everybody at some points had this illustration cast to them where it's like, and when you stand before God someday, like, what's going to happen? And I imagine holding this thing up and being like, is this good enough? Is this okay? Like, how do you feel about me? Be weird to pray sometimes where you'd have, I'd ask that question. I think some of you know what this is like. I think some of you still know what this is like, actually and you wrestle with this, and you feel the uncertainty of it at times. What was interesting is, as I tried to do all of this and engage all of this, and as I got older, the more committed I got to this, the more obedient, the more like forthright I got about it, regardless of how I was treating other people, the more intense I got about it, it seemed like the more applause I got from people at church. People liked that about me. Like, they, I was esteemed in that regard. And people would look, and they made me a leader in the youth ministry. And my parents would say, like, we're proud of you. Like, that, you know, I see what you're trying to do here. This is great. Or, or, or I would find that other people around me would be like, you know, that guy's doing something good. And they'd use words like growth, spiritual growth. And they'd use words like maturity when they'd talk about these things with me. And, and I liked it. It felt really good. But deep inside, I kind of wondered, but man, what if all this ends up and I'm just a fake? What if all this ends up and I hold up the resume and it's just not enough or it wasn't honest enough or it wasn't sincere enough or something wasn't enough and, and I lose all the blessing or what if I'm... I always just felt like something was, I don't know, missing. Like there was still some kind of longing or searching inside of me despite the fact that people were starting to look and be like, he's going somewhere. There was a part of it with me that just felt a little lacking empty, if I'm honest with you. And I share all this with you because I know that some of you have walked through these same things and know what this same thing feels like. There's like this search where it's like, okay, I'm doing the things that God wants me to do. I'm reading the scriptures. I'm, I'm following this life and I'm trying to live this way. And yet it just feels like, I still feel like something's missing. My soul is still thirsty at the end of the day. And I want something more. You know, there's a moment in the Bible where you see Jesus interact with an individual who experiences all of the same stuff. 
And I love that this story is in there. In fact, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three Gospels accounts this. Uh, John's the only one that doesn't, this particular story. And I love it because we get to see somebody wrestle with and struggle with this so that we might learn from this individual today. And I wanna, I wanna walk through that together. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're gonna hang out there for the morning because I think there's something for us to learn from this gentleman's story. And if you know what it is to hold a resume or to be worried about what's on yours or any of that stuff, man, you are in good company. And this is a great passage for all of us today. So beginning at verse 17, says, and as he, he being Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This isn't a normal interaction. You know this from the very beginning. When was the last time somebody ran up to you and knelt down in front of you to ask you a question, like full sprint, stop kneeling, and then ask, this doesn't happen. This was a big moment. This is a person with a sense of urgency. You don't run up and kneel in front of somebody with an intellectual question. You know, I was just curious. I thought I'd be dramatic for a moment. You run up with kneel in front of somebody because there's something in you that's plaguing you and this person may be able to help you out. They might have the answer. I need something. There's no preservation of dignity in this moment. It's casting all that aside and saying, I'm, I'm betting the farm on this. And he asked Jesus this question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This isn't just a random guy. Matthew, Mark, Luke all detail the same experience. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. So think of him almost like a governor, right? So this is a somebody. And this is a person who had power. This is a person who was responsible for other people. This is a person who had climbed their way through a ladder, had accomplished a lot in life. They were capable, they were competent, they had done good things. All of this was true. And all three of the gospel accounts, when they talk about this, and you'll hear this in just a moment, talk about the fact that he was wealthy. Now in this culture, if you're seen as having power and wealth, it was for one of two reasons. Now, one, it was because you were corrupt and you'd swindled a bunch of people and you were gonna get what was coming to you at some point in time. But two, it's because you were righteous. It's because you read the scriptures. It's because you followed what God said. It's because you were kind to people. It's because you worked hard. It's because you were capable, competent, all of those things and God was looking at you and he rewarded you for this. And so this guy would have been seen as the person that God was just most certainly with and that he was most certainly with God. This is the one who's on the right track, the one that everybody else is looking at and like telling their kids, like live like that guy, do what that guy's doing. I don't know how to answer this question, ask him. This is the person that everyone would have wanted to be like, on the up and up, going somewhere, having all of the things and being religiously astute, right? And yet he is the one who runs and kneels before Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The book of Matthew, Ask the question this way, what good deed must I do or accomplish to inherit eternal life? You see, this was inherently a resume question, friends. The man runs up holding his resume and he goes, what do I need to add to this so that I don't lose the good things and I don't end up in the bad? What do I need to do here, Jesus? What do I need to accomplish? What do I need to stop doing? What do I need to start doing? What commitment do I need to make? What new kind of tenacity do I need to garner up so that I can live with this kind of faith or this kind of belief? Is there something I need to say? What do I need to put on this box? What new bullet point do I need to add here? What must I do? This is inherently a resume question. And that's despite all the success, despite the accolades, despite the wealth, despite all of the things he'd accumulated and built up in time, his soul's still hungry. There's still a longing within him. And Jesus looks and responds this way. Verse 18, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. This is confusing to read because he's the son of God. So that's weird. And then Jesus himself calls himself what? The good shepherd? There are all kinds of moments where people refer to Jesus as good and where Jesus refers to himself as good. And yet, how does he start by responding to this man? He goes, why do you call me good? I don't know if it's so much Jesus saying, stop calling anybody good. I think he's looking saying, but why do you call me good? I think what Jesus is actually doing here is highlighting what this gentleman was preoccupied with. Because he's preoccupied with goodness. You see, when you build a religious life based on the question of goodness, I need to be good enough. I need to add enough like, check marks. I need to put enough bullet points on that resume so that when I stand before God, or so that when I live this life, I can have the kind of confidence I can have that God's going to bless me. I'm not going to lose any of that, and bad things won't happen. And he's saying, why are you preoccupied with this sense of goodness when you live a religious life based on that? You pursue being good to, to get what you want, but you know what you end up finding? And I think many of you know this, that good never really feels good enough. There's always like another ladder. There's always another rung in the one that you're climbing. There's always a moment where you do really well for a really long time and then you make a mistake and it feels like you're starting over and there's just a part of the whole thing that feels like this never-ending cycle of just trying harder, committing more. As a preacher, I've learned over time that if I give a message that is super convicting in some way, people will run up and say, thank you for that. And I've learned that the reason why is because there's this thing in all of us that's like, if I'll just tell you to try harder, to do better and to do more, there's a part of you that's like, yes, I'm gonna try harder. Because there's this thing, we're in this pursuit of it. Always looking, always, but it's never quite enough because the next month we need the same message, we need the same thing. Me too, guys, all of us. Jesus responds in verse 19, he goes on, he says, you know the commandments, looks at the man, you know the commandments, you know these things. He's, he's not saying like, you should know, he's telling him like, this is already on your radar, you know this stuff. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And, he's, and then the man looks to Jesus and he said to him, he says, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. I wonder if in this particular moment, the man who is kneeling before Jesus asking this question starts to smile. I wonder if his muscles started to relax and his tension started to alleviate because he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, you know the commands. And the guy's like, yes, it's what's on the resume. I've been doing this since I was a kid. I got it on lock. And everybody around him is probably looking at me like, yeah, do you know this guy? He's been doing all of that. We're all trying to be like him. I've been doing all of these things as he holds up his resume. I've read the scriptures. I've been following God. I've been trying to be good to people. I've been trying to do all this stuff. Okay, and it's that moment where you think somebody's giving you the answer that's like already agreeing with what you hold so you can feel better for another week before you need the question answered again. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, I love this, by the way. This is not the conversation. This is a window into Jesus' heart. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Mark's the only one that tells us this, but I'm grateful he did. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Come and follow me. Do not miss the way verse 21 starts here. This isn't a quiz from Jesus. <laughs> this man's not asking a question where it's like, what must I do to inherit eternal light in Jesus, life? And Jesus throws down the gauntlet and is like, here's how you're gonna pony up, right? 
Here's how you're going to rise to the occasion and commit harder. And here's the new thing you're going to do. You're going to go sell everything you have. If you really believe in me, if you really trust me, you're going to go get rid of all this stuff. And that's the, like the final law and the final commander message here. That's not what's happening. Mark is so kind to let us know this. What's he say? And Jesus loved him. And it's out of that love that Jesus looks and he goes, there's still one thing you lack. I imagine when he said that, there's something about that resonated in the man's heart. Imagine that as he said that, there was something about that word you lack that the man would have felt deep in his soul. Because that's who runs and kneels before somebody with this kind of question. It's a person who feels like something in here is still missing. It's a person who's still wrestling with all of this. I imagine that when he heard the phrase, you lack, it would have been so powerful because when you live your life based on religion, based on your own resume, when you live your life trying to build your spiritual resume, there's always this sense or this feeling that it's not enough. Like if I just did the next Bible study, if I just read the next thing, if I just heard the next message, if I just sang the next song, if I just engaged the next way, or when I was younger, it's if I just went to some other country and abandoned everything I had and loved Jesus there, then it would be more prolific and powerful. Those are not bad things in any way, shape, or form, but there's always this sense that something's lacking, and if I just took one more step, if I just tried harder and engaged, if I, if I just really committed then, and it's this trap. I'll ask anybody that's lived their life long enough in this, and they've been doing the same circle for a very long time, and it gets tiring, and you start to kind of numb out, and you mute yourself a little bit. See, there's always a sense of lack when it comes to religion that you end up feeling deep in your core. I find myself wondering if this is why it's often the most religious of people who are concerned the most with sin. Right? It's often the most religious of people that I find who are wanting me to talk the most about sin. And I think it might be, I don't know, but I think it might be because sin explains the lack that they still feel. Like if we could just get rid of all this bad stuff or all these things, then, then we'd finally feel whole and complete. Then we'd finally feel like the lack is gone. But I want you to notice when Jesus looks at this person and he says, one thing you still lack, what he doesn't say is it's that struggle in your life and I need you to get over it. What's he say? There's one thing you still lack. And what's he tell him? Come and follow me. Don't waste your possessions. Don't waste this thing that you've accumulated. Go sell it off. Give that to the poor. But come, do life with me. Come walk with me. Let me walk with you. Come, come live this life, this only life that you have. Come live this thing with me now and always. Come and follow me. And then we get to verse 22. This is how the story closes. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He leaves, downtrodden and sad, walks the opposite direction with Jesus standing right there. Let's review this whole thing for a moment, just to pull the whole thing into picture here. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks one key question, runs to Jesus, kneels before him, what deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is inherently a resume question. What can I accomplish? What can I do? What bullet point can I add? What must I do? What deed so that I can get the thing that I want here? And Jesus meets this very sincere question with a very sincere answer. He says, well, come and follow me. Sell all you have and come and follow me. See, the sincere question was met with a sincere answer. 
the man got what he wanted. He got the answer. And then he hears it, and he can't bring himself to swallow it. He walks up, and it's like he walks away still clutching his own resume as Jesus is standing there offering his. And it's sad. The Bible lets us know that it's sad. He can't take Jesus up on his offer. Do you see the irony here? This is a profound moment of irony. The concept of eternal life isn't like sitting in a cloud with a harp. I sure hope not, because I get bored real fast, and that sounds like a long time, right? The concept of eternal life is life lived with God, now and forever. Life lived in the fullness and the vastness and the beauty and the glory and the wonder of God, starting now, flowing in both directions. Eternity isn't like a someday. Eternities are right now and always. Life lived with God starts now. The man says, how do I get this eternal life? And who does he ask? The son of God. He has the third, like third member of the Trinity standing right there, second, depending on how you put your order. But like, hey, he's standing right there. One of the members of the Trinity, like this is God. He's asking God, how do I get life with you? And God says, well, come with me. Let's do life. And the man says, I think I'm going to hang on to what I built. And walks away sadly. Do you see the irony here? This is a man who came running. That's hard. it's, It's a crazy thing for me to think about. And I think about why. Like, why did he walk away? Why, when the very thing that he ran out to ask, did he finally get that answer with the Son of God standing there and the invitation of a lifetime to go to life? Why did he walk the other direction, holding on to his own resume while Jesus made his way to the next town? And I think it's this. And I wanna wanna say this really clearly this morning because this perhaps is one of the one things I want you to hear today. It's this, sometimes we want what God has without actually wanting life with God. This is a key descriptor of the religious life, friends. Sometimes we want what God has without actually wanting God himself. We want the good things and we don't want the bad. Does that mean that we want God? We want the blessing and we want like stability and we want some security and we want these things, but. Does that mean we want God? Sometimes it's easy for us to like try to build the rules in the box around us so that we don't need God. The most perfect systems of religion have almost created an operating system where God doesn't even need to be in it. Because if you just do these things, live these things, hold up the resume, you can be sure, but it's never really enough. Sometimes we want what God has without actually wanting life with God. The rich young ruler wanted eternal life and then he's given the opportunity to have life with God and he walks away, he can't do it he's clutching his own resume. A life built in religion is always seeking to get what God has without actually getting God. It it asks the question constantly, what deed must I do? What act must I engage in? What thing must I stop doing? What moment must I call out? What belief must I hold? What box must I check? But the problem with this is that you can end up following religion for your security in this particular way, and it works fantastic until you're tired or until life turns you upside down, right? It's not always just about your own sense of determination. What happens when you get the phone call and all of a sudden life flips upside down and you don't handle it well because you weren't prepared for this particular moment and stuff starts to happen. And it's almost like you lose the best of yourself in some of those moments and you're fighting to try to find your way back. In those moments, religion dumps you because it's like the job description got a little weird at the end. (laughs) 
But Jesus doesn't. The resume of Christ is there for you. He's holding you. This is the thing. I love the way American pastor Tim Keller says it. He says, religion is the antithesis of the gospel. Religion says, I obey in order to be accepted. But the gospel says, I obey because I am accepted. Do you see the difference here? It might seem subtle, but it is dramatic in the way we live a life. Religion is always us as finite creatures seeking the mastery of our lives, trying to lock it all down so that everything is certain and secure. But the invitation of Christ is into the mystery of life with God. You don't know where he will take you or what you will do or what is unfolding with him, but, but it's good and it's beautiful. And the blessings flow from it. Place your faith in Jesus. Follow him with your heart, follow him with your life. I'm not talking about checking boxes, I'm talking about living life like with him. Walking through this life like he's a part of it with you, praying and seeking and doing all these things in terms of just how you're engaging your life. And what you will find is that his grace is actually sufficient for you. Friends, this is a life lived without lack. It's when the wrestling stops and you can be seated in the peace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. This is a very powerful thing. I don't know about you, but I want my life to end differently or my story to end differently than the story of the rich young ruler. It's hard for me to read this. I hate that the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to him afterwards. I hate that this is, I know the Bible tells a specific story with a specific storyline, but it drives me nuts that we read this. He walks away sad and that's the last I hear of the rich young ruler. It drives me crazy. What did he do? What happened? What continued to happen? Did anything change? I hate that the invitation to a life with God was right there and it's the thing he most wanted, even feeling that sense inside of him and that there was something he just couldn't bring to himself to let go. I hate that, it's hard and I'm sad about it. I'm sad that the thing his heart was longing for was right there and that he misses it and he walks away and I think there's a part of me that just looks and says, I don't want my life to be this way. In the end, I don't wanna be left like the rich young ruler where I'm standing there trusting in my own resume for my security, for my righteousness, for my life, when the invitation to life with Christ is right there all along. May we want more than just what God has to offer. May we want life with God himself, friends. It's a significant. And so what might that look like? How do you even begin that process? I think sometimes we overcomplicate it. And I love that Jesus didn't. In this story, how, what did Jesus do? What's the, what, when, when it came to the offer, what was it? It's the same today. The invitation to move beyond religion is the same today. What is it? He says, come and follow me. You know, in youth ministry, when I used to mentor students, I used to sit down in my first years of youth ministry and I would be like, what's going on in your life? And what is there you're working on? That's how I would talk to them about all this stuff. And these were like heavy conversations and kids felt guilty and there was all kinds of weight and I didn't see a lot of change or anything else. And then I started to get some of this and I started to read some of this and it started to transform my own life and I changed my language and I sat down with students and I started to say, what does it look like to follow Jesus for you this week? And it stopped becoming about all kinds of sin and behavior, although sometimes that was in there and sometimes it was just about what God, the unique things God was doing in their lives. And all of it started to move and you started to see kids blossom and open up. It became a powerful question. It's been the question all along. Come and follow me. So I wanna spend the rest of our morning just looking at three ways to place your trust in Christ's resume. Even if you're standing here clutching your arm, three ways to place your trust in Christ's resume and pick up the call to follow Jesus, to live life with him. And the first is this, follow Jesus by trusting him with your security. I had success on there because those are really two sides of the same coin. 
right? Some of us are afraid of losing everything and some of us are afraid of not having everything, but either way, it's just a, they're, they're two sides of that same, same coin there, that same issue. You know, for some of us, just like the rich young ruler, and this is for many people in life, we turn to religion to help us feel secure. Go through a really uncertain or insecure time in your life and you go to church and you're like, what do I need to do? And someone's like, believe this, say this, pray this prayer and you'll be okay. And you're like, that was it, I got it. Thank you, right? The world felt like a tidal wave before and now apparently like, I'm protected by this box. That's why we often turn there. The problem with that is that our felt sense of security becomes directly proportionate to our own level of obedience, belief, and commitment, which is why then a month later, you're like, and then things got crazy, and I, I don't know, I need another answer. And we keep prescribing the same one over and over again. It drops you when you struggle. It drops you when you doubt. God tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us. Says this in the book of Leviticus, echoes this in the book of Hebrews, both New Testament and Old Testament, friends. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Scripture speaks speaks to this truth in Romans 8, uh, verses 38 through 39. Paul says, he says, for I am sure, as in I am certain, I am convinced of, take it to the bank, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing that any of our anxious brains can create is a situation that was like going to invade or take on in our lives. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Religion tells you that security comes by adding more and more to your own resume. Moving beyond religion is when you pick up Christ and you say, I'm good because he says I am. I'm his because he says I am. I'm good with God because he has made it so. There was a cross and a resurrection and his name is Jesus Christ and he pulls me in. I trust that. That is a powerful thing. The next time you're struggling with uncertainty in your life, because you're going to, there's going to come a moment where you're going to struggle with uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now, much less a year from now. The next time you're struggling with your own sense of mortality, the next time you find yourself in a moment with your life, looking at your life and going, I don't know how this is going to work out, and it just like matters to me, and I'm so confused. I don't know what to do here. I want you to pause. I don't want you to be still for just a moment. Let your heart quiet for just a few seconds, and then I want you to pray. Pray through it, not like you're praying to Jesus out there so that he can come parachuting into the midst of your life. Pray to him like he's sitting in the chair with you. Pray to him like he's closer than that, like you are actually his temple and he is within you, moving through you. Pray to him like he's in this same situation with you and as close to you as you could possibly be, like he's with you, life with God. And when you pray, ask two things. One, you don't know everything and you don't get to control everything, so just ask him, God, what is the next step in front of me that maybe I can take here? And see where he leads you, see where he takes you, but two, ask him this as well. Lord, is there anything that I need to trust to you because you're the only one big enough to hold it and could you show me what that is in my life? And lean the full weight of your trust on the resume of Jesus Christ as you seek to navigate forward amidst the uncertainty of your life. Second one here this morning. Second one is this, follow Jesus by trusting him with your life. I know some of us are gonna nod our heads and be like, well, of course. No, this is really significant. This one might be the one that for me, I'm like, I really want us to see this. And so here's an illustration. I was at summer camp again this last week. One of my favorite populations of people to talk to are juniors and seniors in high school. And I love it because they're just getting to the spot where they're trying to plan out the rest of their lives 
in this very tiny window and they're so aggravated that every one of us adults is like, so what are you gonna do with your whole life now that you're 17 and 18 and have the world figured out? And that's a ton of weight and a ton of pressure and they feel all of that. And I love to talk to them in those moments. And so I sat and I was with, with a certain person, they were a senior in high school as a gentleman. And I said, so you got a lot of people probably telling you to do about a thousand things right now. And he said, yes. And then I paused and I said, what do you think like God's putting you though? What matters to you? I was expecting him to say, I don't know, because that's what I would have said, to be really honest. And he didn't. Without skipping a beat, he goes, oh, well, I want to go to college and I want to get a business degree because I want to start my own business so that I can invest my time and energy into something that's most meaningful to me. And I want to make a decent living out of that and make enough money so that I can have a family and live like a pretty good life. Said all of this. And I was like, wow, that's impressive. My answer was, I don't know. Stop asking me when I was that age. And he's got this thing like laid out. And I said, that's awesome. What about like relationship with God? Like, what's that going to look like? And then he pauses. He goes, oh, like I'll still go to church and pray and stuff. You laugh, but don't. What he so honestly just communicated is the way most of us actually approach faith in life. He, he just doesn't know better than to put on the right answers at this point in time because he hasn't had to manage that for decades. He was super honest. And I want you to listen to the way he described that. He's like, here's my life. I want to get a business degree. I want to have a job. I want to make money. I want family. And like, here's how the road stretches out. And then he said, and here, oh, here's God. I'm going to go to church and pray. And they were, he described it like it was two completely different tracks. Two completely different things. Don't judge that at all. That's what most of us are doing constantly, friends. When we talk about trusting Christ with our life, it's looking at those two things and it's laying them square on top of one another where you can't tell the difference between the two. Jesus wants to get just as involved in, your, in the question of like, where does God want to take you as he does with how much money are you supposed to make? It's all the same thing. What does it mean to walk this life in Jesus Christ, friends? Right? Christ cares just as much about what is the thing God wants to grow in you right now as he does about how would you, are you going to parent this next situation that's complicated and difficult for you? Same thing. Jesus cares just as much about what does it mean to, to continue to grow in his likeness and where does he, what does he want to do with your life or all of these big questions about like who God wants you to do or where he wants you to be or any of these things. What's that going to look like? He cares about that just as much as the question and who will I date? And who will I marry? And who does God have for me? And what about my relationships and friendships? It's all there. Jesus isn't parachuting into our lives on Sundays. Religion is tr constantly trying to convince us that God is locked in a building on a cloud somewhere far off. And we're like calling out to him through a loudspeaker so that he can somehow make his way and care about our lives. No, he is in this thing with us. The invitation to follow Jesus is to live life with him. The decisions you make, your joys and your sorrows, where you go, all of that stuff, asking Christ, what would you have me do here? What does it mean to walk this? Sometimes you'll get a clear answer and sometimes you won't. Sometimes there's a moment of faith where you're just like, I'm gonna trust what you've built up in me and I'm gonna trust that you're gonna teach me as I go and maybe that's the point. But it's powerful when you live a life with Christ and it doesn't drop you the way religion does, friends. And lastly, Follow Jesus by trusting him with your righteousness. Follow Jesus by trusting him with that, that notion. Am I good with God? Is God good with me? We need to take a really honest moment for a second and just pause and, are you still asking that question? 
And I don't mean if you're brand new or never been here, if you've been here for a very long time, are you still finding yourself in moments where you go, if I'm really honest with myself, I worry about that. I worry about what's on the resume. I worry about how that whole thing goes or what this is. I worry that I'm gonna like lose the blessing or that I miss it. I worry sometimes that I'm a fraud. I don't know. You know, if that's you, and I think if we're all honest, there's a little bit of that probably in each of us at various moments and times. I want you to hear me really clearly when I say God isn't looking at your resume. He's not. That's just the lie we come to believe when we base our lives on religion that keeps us locked in it. The truth is that the only resume that God is looking at is the resume of Jesus Christ, and it is full and complete. The very first bullet says came to live with us, the very, among us, the incarnation. The very second bullet says died upon the cross for the forgiveness of sins of the world. The third bullet says rose again and takes us to life with him. And then under special skills and abilities right there, it says, and it has the ability to actually say, it is finished and mean it. We can trust it and take it to the bank. If you're holding your resume, wondering if you need to add another bullet, you're going to be an exhausting loop in your life. Step back, drop that thing and hold Christ. It's the only one that God is looking at. It is the one that matters the most, friends. We do not ask ourselves the question, is God okay with me when we look ourselves in the mirror? We ask ourselves the question, is God okay with me when we stare at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And we profoundly and triumphantly declare, yes, he is. Because nothing in my life is going to overturn how powerful of a statement that is and how powerful of an effect that is once and for all. That is, that's a life-changing thing, friends. Start by following Jesus, by placing your full weight of your trust on that. You know, I started in my life with religion by praying a prayer so that I could avoid a fiery place. And somewhere along the way, things changed. Somewhere along the way, I don't know precisely when, there's a series of moments there, but I learned to fall in love with Jesus. And I learned what it was to actually be fully and unconditionally loved by him. And I learned that I can trust him with my life and that I can go on this great big adventure that he's gifted me with called the days that, that I get to be alive, that you get to be alive. It's a precious gift and he wants to walk it with you. It is an absolute adventure. I'm a little surprised by where I've ended up in certain moments and times and places. I'm a little surprised that I'm standing here talking to all of you right now and I'm grateful for it because he is good. I don't know where he's gonna take you. I don't know what good and beautiful thing is still waiting to unfold in your heart and in your life, but friends, the call is still there. The invitation to move beyond religion is still there. As Jesus looks at each and every one of us and beckons, come and follow me. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you hold us. We thank you that amidst the uncertainty and the craziness of this world, of our lives, that, that your resume is what it is. I thank you for the cross and I thank you for the resurrection. Above all, Lord, more than just the actions, I thank you for just giving us you, that we have life with you. Lord, if there's anybody in here who doesn't sense that or doesn't know what that's like, God, I pray that they would sense your nearness. I pray that you give them great courage and great boldness to place the full weight of their trust on you. And I pray that that would feel joyous. 
I, I trust, Lord, that your yoke really is easy and that your burden really is light and not like a sack of bricks on her back, but that it lifts us up and holds us and carries us, Lord. And so may you bless each person here with that reality and that understanding that we might walk with you in the adventure that is our lives. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.